You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, California. My name is Julie Lifcott Haynes. I'm coming to you from my home in Palo Alto, California. And this event is also being sponsored by Common Sense Media of San Francisco. I will disclose that I am on their board, but you should not hold that against them. I think we all sense how very lucky we are to be a part of this conversation today. We think that perhaps over 10,000 of you are now watching. Please use the hashtag InforumSF and AntiRacistBaby as you are inspired to share what you are experiencing during this conversation. Today, we will hear from Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, historian, professor at American University, where he founded the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center, whom, as we speak, is becoming a faculty member at Boston University, where he will lead the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the books, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016, the best-selling and so popular it's unavailable, How to Be an Anti-Racist, the young adult book, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, and his fresh off the presses board book for infants and toddlers, Anti-Racist Baby, a children's book that teaches parents and children how to uproot racism in society and in our own lives. He is one of the leading voices, if not the leading voice of our time on race, racism, and his term, anti-racism. And we are so fortunate that of all the calls being made to him in these terrible times, he said yes to the Commonwealth Club and Common Sense Media and the community of listeners they are known for drawing in. Welcome, Dr. Kendi. We are also here with the Bay Area's own Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, child psychologist, director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute, the Graduate School of Psychology at UC Berkeley, and where she is on the faculty. She is a fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley, where she's one of the hosts of the popular podcast, The Science of Happiness. And her work focuses on trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and how children understand race. I'm here because I've written a memoir, a personal account of what it's been like to be black and biracial in white spaces in America, to learn to loathe myself before I learned I was worthy of love. And that book is called Real American, as in Ain't I a Real American? An homage to Sojourner Truth. So let us get to some truths. We are here virtually thanks to a global pandemic called COVID-19, But we are here to discuss a different global pandemic, systemic racism, racist power, weaponized white nationalism, and its ability to inflict horrific harm, and how, in that context, to be an anti-racist and to raise anti-racist children. Viewers and listeners, time is going to fly. You will hunger for more. Feelings will come up in you, and I encourage you to notice them, pay attention to what they are. And at the end, I'm going to suggest what you might do with what you've noticed and learned from this conversation today. Allison and Ibram, 
I want to begin by honoring you as Black people, professors, parents, thinkers, writers, humans. I want to begin by acknowledging that this has been an acutely traumatic few weeks set within the chronic pandemic of racism. We have had some moments of hope regarding human rights lately, such as the Supreme Court decision that gender fluid and trans people cannot be discriminated against in the workplace, and today's Supreme Court decision that dreamers can continue to be protected by DACA. But we have seen yet again an unarmed black person murdered by police, captured on video. We have seen a white woman tell a black man who was simply asking her to curb her dog in a bird watching area that quote, an African-American man is threatening my life, captured on video. And these are simply the latest, latest examples of the time but no longer the latest examples, now that they're three weeks behind us, of racism wielded as weapon in America. These examples evoke the murder of Emmett Till. They evoke the fictional To Kill a Mockingbird. I want to honor with you that this has likely been a hard three weeks set within the context of lives that have perhaps at times been quite hard. And now here we are asking you to do more work to enlighten audiences. And I want to pause and say it's a lot. Even as we don't want to worry about our bodies, the three of us, when actual black bodies are being butchered by police, as Ibram writes about so beautifully in How to Be Anti-Racist, nevertheless, your black bodies, minds, hearts, and souls are being asked to carry and hold a lot. So let me begin by offering gratitude to you for being here, and then let me offer the most sincere of inquiries by asking both of you, how are you doing? In these times, I, I so appreciate the the opening um, and the framing. And in terms of how am I doing, I'll just say um, I am well because I am sustained by community, and I am well because I am called to serve, and I am well because um, folks have opened doors to be able to to speak. Um, and that wellness is also about being exhausted and on fire, um, and seeing this is an opportunity to affect change. So I'm really happy to to be with you all. And I think for me, I think the last two weeks, I, I did not feel, and you know, I was constantly trying to to think sort of past this, but I didn't feel as if I could really think about myself and and what I was feeling and and what was happening to to my body because I just knew so many people were mourning their lost loved ones. So many people were, were traumatized. I was, of course, feeling traumatized through their trauma. But I was just, I was just trying to remain focused um, on trying to sort of clarify and explain that, that very trauma and, and really the violence of anti-Black racism. And, and I, I say all of that to say that I also know that, you know, I needed to think about my own feelings and, and even my own wellness. And so I think maybe I was able to do that through writing um, or maybe not. Um, but it's a never go, never ending sort of struggle for me. Like I almost feel, I almost feel ashamed if I'm thinking about my own pain when I know so many people are in pain, but but as you stated, if we don't think about our own pain as we think about other people's pain, then, then we're going to end up being hurt too. Thank you for that, both of you. 
I know we have many listeners who themselves have been deeply pained by what has been happening in our country lately. And I want and hope that you will feel seen and heard as we discuss these things today. So um, Ibram, Allison, I'd like personally, and I'd like our audience to get to know each of you a bit better. So here's how I'd like to frame that. Can we start with your sharing the first time you knew that your skin color was a problem? And then tell us, because I presume that happened relatively young, how you became the person. How did you get to be the person who does the work you've chosen uh, for your professional life? And somehow along the way, tell us about uh, how many kids you have and kind of your, your family situation. So sort of a, a bio framed uh, with kind of how did you first know that your, your brown skin was problematic? Well, um, I have to say it wasn't so much my skin um, that, that set me apart. And that's in part because I had a very um, fortunate opportunity to, to grow up in Hawaii. And growing up in Hawaii meant that skin color and race and conversations about race were really fundamentally different. Um, so it wasn't that my skin was different. My skin was pretty much the same um, as everybody else. It was that my hair was different. Um, and that when I would try to go to hula practice, I couldn't do the things that some of the other girls could. So I was noticing of that different, but I think it's actually my growing up in Hawaii in, in a place that I'm deeply indebted to, a place that has been... Um, colonized, a place that has been taken from its sovereign land, the fact that I even got the chance to kind of be there um, and be allowed to be in that beautiful space, um, I think frames a sense of humility and wonder. Growing up in a beautiful place helps, um, but also growing up where the conversations about race were very, very different, and in my experience, really frequent, um, and all the time, and it was a place of narration. It actually wasn't until I came to the mainland and I went to Boston um, that things felt a little different, uh, that found out that the conversations about race were different. They weren't places of kind of curiosity and inquiry about our humanness. They were actually really divisive. Um, and it was in that kind of place that I was studying how kids understood race and how they remembered race that I had a little white girl in my study who refused to engage in a task on prejudice. She said that she wouldn't do it. And she was the only kid out of 70 who wouldn't do it. And I asked her why. And she said, my parents told me that I shouldn't be biased. And she was seven. And I've been tracking down what parents are doing since then. That's been my career is listening to parents and listening to families and seeing what, what did they do to help her? Um, and what could we do also to kind of help myself and help my own kind of experiences? So that's been the focus of my career and in the context of trauma, um, listening to the pain, I think that you both so well articulated and also so clearly we've experienced but my service is really in working with folks who are experiencing racialized trauma um, and thinking about how those things intersect. Um, and so, you know, that's brought me to the Bay Area. That's brought me here and brought me um, to a place where I have a, what I call a mess of children. I have an 11-year-old son. I have a nine-year-old daughter. And I have an almost three-year-old daughter. Um, I'll also frame and pause that my children are mixed. Um, my partner is Mexican and white. Um, and uh, the ability to speak to and pay attention to how they negotiate and pay attention to race is, is not only an intellectual calling, it's, it's a matter of survival um, for us. So that's how I would say kind of I got here is the combination of Hawaii being a place that nurtured um, and really protected me and supported me. And I always feel like I think about race as an outsider because it was very different there. And for me, I have a, a four-year-old daughter, Imani, 
who actually is really even more excited than I am about about anti-racist baby because she sees her herself in it and and I sort of my first awareness of racism or even that my dark skin or dark skin was a problem was actually in third grade and I was in an in a classroom that was majority Black and, and Latinx, but there was a, a white teacher and I think three white students. And it became apparent to me over the course of the year that whenever any of the white children would, would raise their hand, even if a, a child of color had raised their hand before them, that the teacher would invariably call on them. And I sat towards the back near uh, a black girl who almost never spoke in class and almost never rose, raised her hand, but one day she did. And I saw the teacher look at her, look away, look at a white child who had raised their hand afterwards and call on the white child. And I saw the little black girl's sort of hand going down and her spirits going down and it enraged me. And Right after that period, we had chapel service. This was a private school, and I decided to stage a a one-man sit-in in in the chapel. I refused to go back to class and and because, you know, I I saw her pain. And and I feel like somehow, some way, I've I've been able to really see the pain of of Black people and really empathize with that pain and, and really have built a career on really defending Black people and, and our humanity, and, and certainly against the inhumanity of, of anti-Black racism. And, and, and I've, I've really been, been striving my whole life to stand up and to speak out for those little girls and older girls and, and boys and, and others who, who aren't necessarily able to speak for themselves. And so that's what I'm striving to do now, and that's what I'll always strive to do, defend Black people as I'm defending their humanity as I'm defending humanity in general. Thank you both. That beautiful story of having empathy for another um, is something I hope every teacher listening is putting a pin in because although that was a long time ago, um, Ibram, it is of course still happening today. And this is an example of the small moments where we go overlooked and the damage you saw being inflicted on that black child's spirit as she lowered her hand and lowered her head, and you saw that. Um, My moment of noticing something was wrong with me came when I was about three or four years old, and I think it was served in part by the fact that I have a white mother and a black father, so I was able to discern how the world treated my daddy versus how the world treated my mommy, and the undeniable fact was there were strangers who would see me and my black daddy walking down the street and shoot looks at my father that frightened me. And I couldn't have called them racism then, uh, but I just knew they were angry and hateful. And and even those eyes seemed violent. And my white mother was never looked at that way. She got different looks, strange looks, but not the violent racist white sneer. Um, And I'll add that I have two children, 18 and 20, and they are mixed race and present differently to the world. And that definitely impacts how I go about raising them. My son, a big Afro, a light skinned but phenotypically presenting black man, light skinned black, big fro. My daughter, 
very racially ambiguous. Um, many white people aren't aware of her mixed ancestry. Um, I want to pause and say that white people I know are hungry for information. That's why you're here today. I want to also say black people and other people of color are also hungry for support and to be seen in this conversation. And I'm intentionally trying to structure this conversation so as to try to regard everyone in the audience rather than normalizing the experience of white people, which is all too often what happens in conversations like these. For those in the audience who are black and brown, I know your story of when you first knew maybe something was wrong with you because of the color of your skin or your hair. Um, maybe your own story came up as you listened uh, to what we just discussed. And for folks who have not had that experience, I hope you're feeling curious. I want you to be curious about what comes up for you as you hear stories like this. We all need to be asking ourselves, what are we going to do to try to ensure no child ever feels that way again? Now, we are here to discuss your beautiful new book for children, Anti-Racism anti -racism Baby. Um, Allison, your expertise is on how children understand race. So the floor is yours right now to tell us what we need to understand about how children understand race. So, I mean, the first thing that I want us to kind of begin with is a foundation of um, that children are trying to make sense of race. Um, I think what's beautiful about the book and the ways that you've spoken before, Ibram, um, is, is around kind of identifying that um, racism is often about denial. I think that denial starts when we begin and say, our children don't see race. They don't notice race. They're not paying attention to race. So a foundational premise is our children are um, brilliant and they're trying to make sense of the world around them. So why wouldn't they notice our skin color, our phenotype, how we're treated? Why wouldn't they notice those racial markers? So first, research indicates that children as young as six months were paying attention to racialized cues. Um, and the next thing that we have to think about that is um, that they're not doing race like we do. Just because they notice race doesn't mean that they're coming with our baggage and our history. So it's not as if the six-month-old is saying, why, there's an African-American, but rather that they're noticing difference and that we have the opportunity up front to engage in conversation to teach children that, ch that difference doesn't mean pathology, that difference doesn't mean bad, that we can actually teach our children how to read and, and pay attention to race. So foundationally, children are making sense of and trying to understand race. The last point that I'll say around this is that they're usually doing so in the context of silence, especially in the context of white families. White families, research-wise, has found have don't spend as much time talking about race, narrating race. They're usually avoiding that, um, as I hear, because they don't want to create racist children. But I really kind of caution us and say that that means that what we're doing is we're leaving children to make sense of race um, without the support of parents and making sense of race by seeing what they see in the world around us. Um, so I, I'd like to frame this as our opportunity and that the, the research is, is really there in terms of the cognitive basis, the ways that we can kind of support, but more important than research, uh, I think is our experiences and our wisdom, and also the ways in which families of color have had to talk about race with their children, um, that we need to engage in those kind of conversations in order to protect um, them, in order to teach them how to read the racialized world around them. Thank you. So this beautiful book, Anti-Racist Baby, is for children, but inherently, as their parents, this concept is very much about us, as Allison has kind of teed up for us. Because our children inherit the world we give them, our presence, our actions, our language, our behavior shape their thinking and their actions. As Ibram says in How to Be an Anti-Racist, 
many of us strongly condemn Trump's racist ideas while being unaware of our own. So I think it's time that we turn to our racism and to the concept of anti-racism. Ibram, what is anti-racism? You say in How to Be an Anti-Racist, the opposite of being racist is not just not racist, but anti-racist. And I bet some people are wondering, isn't that just semantics? So tell us what being anti-racist means specifically, what that looks like in the actions and words of adults and children. Well, well, I think in, in, in general, I think when Americans can really think about it and think about it in an honest way, when do we hear Americans say, I'm not racist? It's, it's typically right after they said or did something that was racist. <laughs> uh, they typically defend themselves and deny their own racism. And, and really, that's been the case throughout American history. Slaveholders said they were, in our terms, not racist. Slave traders, Jim Crow segregationists were like, oh, it's perfectly separate, but to equal down here, we're not racist. Lynchers stated, no, these are black beasts who were lynching. They're the beasts, not us. We're not racist. All the way up to Ku Klux Klansmen, who, who say that they're not racist as well. And Donald Trump says he's the least racist person anywhere in the world. And so the construct of not racist has never really had any meaning other than to deny one's own racism. Uh, by contrast, to be anti-racist is to view the racial groups as equals. And that's in contrast to racists who say that certain racial groups are better or worse, superior or inferior than another. Uh, anti-racist policies lead to racial equity and justice. And that's in contrast to racist policies that lead to inequity and injustice. And thereby people, the anti-racist people are people who are expressing anti-racist ideas or, or supporting anti-racist policies by contrast to people who are racist, who are expressing racist ideas and, and supporting racist policies. And so when we think about even the ideas and policies, if, if racist ideas connote racial hierarchy and anti-racist ideas connote racial equality, there's no in-between neutrality between hierarchy and equality. So there's no not racist neutrality between that, just like there's no not racist neutrality between a policy leading to inequity and a policy leading to, to equity. And so what I've been encouraging Americans to think about is that you literally actively have to be anti-racist largely because to grow up in this country is to be raised to be racist, especially if our parents are not deliberately teaching us anti-racist ideas because our parents are imagining that we're colorblind or that it's just too hard to talk about or you know, the concept of racism is too sophisticated. So our child doesn't really even, they're not taught deliberately how to be anti-racist, which means we're teaching them to be racist. And, and I hate to break it down as, as that simple, but it really is that simple. Either we're raising them deliberately to view the racial groups as equals, to, to you know, as Allison said, recognize and appreciate human difference to challenge policies that are creating injustice, or they're looking out at their society of racial inequity and injustice and thinking it's normal. And why do they, and, and thinking all these ideas that are degrading people of color 
are normal. That is the case. And so they're raised to be racist. And so I think we have to take a deliberate approach with ourselves to be anti-racist, just as we have to take a deliberate approach with our children. You clearly focus in your work on the notion of changing policies. Um, In fact, late in How to Be an Anti-Racist, you say something like, you know, as an academic, I was once focused on research and education to change minds, and now I'm focusing on research and education to change policy. And um, as a memoirist, I'm focused on storytelling and the, the lived personal experience with an with a goal of changing hearts and minds and, and not necessarily of changing policies. Or maybe I think it's if people's minds and hearts change, then they'll be more inclined to do the work of policy change. I'm wondering if, if you really are seeing it as the opposite, that no, 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 we got to go for policy change first because um, that will sort of force us um, to make the change, even if the, the hearts and minds aren't there. I'm interested in your response to that, Ibram, but also you, Allison. So, so I would just say that I, I obviously do think that it is critically important to, you know, for your memoir to be out there in the world and, and for others to be educating um, away racist ideas, you know, educating away the, the scenario of so many people not living in reality. Um, but I, I also think that it's critically important for us to have the goal of policy change in mind. And and it may not be our personal goal, but when we're thinking about narrative change, it's it's one thing to change minds for the sake of changing minds. It's another thing to change. We should be thinking about wanting to change ourselves to change society. This isn't about knowledge for knowledge's sake. This is about knowledge to transform society. And, And so... And and ultimately, though, we should also recognize that historically, we changed policies against the will of many people who thought it was going to be horrific for them and their families. Then after the policies were changed and they realized that those policies, those anti-racist policies were not horrific for them and their family, and if anything, it started helping their families, uh, then some of those same people were like, no, don't take away my Obamacare. <laughs> don't take that away. You know, I, 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 have a, I have a pre-existing condition. And, you know, no, I don't want you to take away my Obamacare. Or, no, actually, it's, it's okay. Interracial dating, interracial marriage isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Or desegregated schools. You know what? those big black bucks are not harming my, my, my little white girl. And, and so I think that that's also sort of important. We can change minds through our work, but we can also change minds through policy change. Definitely. I mean, the policy has to be there. And so if the question is either or, you know, I'm going to go to the traditional psychologist view and say both. Um, and that what we need is we need, you know, deep, sustainable change. And that means that we have to come at it in multiple different ways. We need different, we need multiple tools by which we do this. And I think it's really important that each one of us picks up our tools um, and, and crafts and hones it very, very well. Um, and that I also need to stay in a place where I know what I can do really well. I'm a therapist, 
right? So I'm going to work on having the individual person be well enough so that they can receive the policy. But we have to do that together. It's our collaborative, our collaborative kind of approach. Um, I think sometimes we get in this kind of tension as if there is a solution or one way of doing it and we put, put it there as opposed to focusing on let's each of us do what we can do um, impeccably, really, really well and collaborate for a deep, sustained change. So I'm going to work really, really hard and really well at talking to parents of young children, to doing my therapy well, to training my students well, and that's with an eye towards so that they're ready to receive the policies when they come or that they can create it. But we've got to be able to do that together. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. One of the tools we all have at our disposal um, is social media. And I think um, what was both um, anguishing and revealing um, about the murder of George Floyd was, um, in addition to the simple fact of it, was the fact that so many non-Black people woke up to the fact that this happens to Black people. Now, for those of us who are Black and are Black adjacent, love Black people, have Black people in our families. We have not had the luxury of ignoring these moments as they've unfolded. Um, and I found myself saying to white friends and, and followers, if your newsfeed was not filled with anguish when Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old, was gunned down by police in broad daylight in Cleveland, playing at a park with a toy gun in 2014, Whose media were you paying attention to? And when Trayvon Martin was gunned down in a gated community at age 17 in Sanford, Florida in 2012, if you were not in anguish over that then as I was, I couldn't speak. I was so scared and incensed. I asked people, whose media were you paying attention to? Um, So to the point of our social media, what we choose to consume via the news, via social media, and what we choose to share as a tool that we have access to, um, speak to that. Speak to how people can uh, widen their blinders or start to consume different narratives so that they can be more aware of the racism around them and show up more effectively as anti-racists on social media. So uh, there's so many just incredible um, public intellectuals uh, and even organizations that are using social media to share data on racial disparities, are using social media to analyze and sort of talk about racist policies, are using social media to challenge circulating racist ideas. And and I think, think it's critically important for us to not just read the books, but to to be regularly engaged in anti-racist or regularly listening to anti-racist critiques in real time of racist things that are happening, um, which I think is an additional layer of education. I'm educated every day um, by these very folks. And and I just think I agree, Julia, that that it's so incredibly important for us to be regularly challenged um, by the media we consume. And, and I, I say this as somebody who, who wrote in How to Be an Anti-Racist that 
that I was part of my process of getting to this point, particularly the process of recognizing that there was nothing wrong with Black women and there was everything wrong with me for thinking there was something wrong with Black women and there's nothing wrong with Black queer people. And there was everything wrong with me for thinking there was something wrong with Black queer people and, and how critically important it was for these two Black women uh, graduate students who I went to school with, uh, who challenged me and, and challenged my student community every day. I'm talking about Yaba Blay and, and Kyla Story, to the point in which I was actually intimidated by them. And, and so I, I just think it's critically important for us to push, put ourselves around people who intimidate us with their brilliance. And I think also along those lines to, to be in a space that we're intimidated because that connotes discomfort. And so often we're creating these echo chambers of things that only feed us. Um, and, you know, I also want to kind of call that out in terms of there, there are more opportunities according to our racialized presence for us to be surrounded in a world that comforts us versus others. That there's some folks that get to have that mirror back a little bit easier so I want to encourage us to kind of think about that. And I want to encourage us to take a look. Where are you uncomfortable in your social media? Where are you challenged by some of those thoughts? Where are you learning about something different? And in addition, you should be seeking out and crafting an opportunity to be diverse in those moments. I, I so often hear families saying, well, how could I possibly learn about you know, people that are different? Or I live in a segregated neighborhood. Well, okay, let's try the thing that's in your hand that you spend nine hours on. How about you listen to a voice that's different? And then we also need to think about this in terms of the conversations that we're having with our children. We need to teach them how to be critical consumers. We need to teach them to ask, where's that coming from? You know, the, the question I ask my children is, who's getting paid off of that? Why are you getting to see that all the time? Who's capitalizing off of your fear, off of your enjoyment? Let's begin to kind of cultivate that. And we also have to know that our, our children are carrying around in their hands images of Black viral death. And they are exposed to that. And um, it has, I have a student, Devonna Jacobs, who did research that found, surprise, surprise, that it's deleterious to Black girls' health to be exposed to images of viral Black death. So we also have to have this conversation uh, and we need to model it. So I have to sit with my kids and they have to see who's in my feed, that, that I need to teach and model them that and about how they're going to consuming it. And I also have to talk with them about what did you see? How did you see it and how do you feel? So the media and, and, and our ability to kind of engage across our difference and be uncomfortable is really important. And we have to prepare our children to engage um, with media that we know is harmful for them. You know, in my work, I think I try to ask the question, do you see Black people as fully human? And people say, of course I do. And I say, how do you know? How do you know you actually regard Black people as fully human? And I'm asking the question because they continue to kill us and ignore our pleas for mercy because they do not hear our cries of anguish as they would hear their own. They ripped us from the arms of our mothers and fathers and children on the auction block because and ignored our cries for mercy because they didn't see our family bonds as human bonds. They saw us as animals. The only sense I can make of the fact that Black people are routinely gunned down on video for the world to see and life goes on as normal, 
the only sense I can make of that is you do not see that death as the death of your son or your child or your daughter. Had Tamir Rice been Tommy Rice, a little 12-year-old white boy, police reform would have happened in 48 hours nationwide. But it didn't happen. And his killer was not jailed because people don't see Black children as human. Let's speak to allyship. If we want our children, all children, to see all humans in their beautiful, distinctive differences, but not to regard those differences as better or worse or preferable or problematic, if we're trying to raise young people to be allies or whatever the better term may be for showing up for others who may have less privilege in the moment, how do we do that? Let's get very specific about how to teach a small child to be an ally, how to teach an elementary schooler, a middle schooler, a high schooler. I'm, I'm noting that it's different depending on how old the child is, how you know what their developmental um, uh, framework is. So if you could give us some specifics, Allison and, and Ibram, you, you may have thoughts on this too. You know, how to be, what, what, can a, what do we teach our children to say? How do we teach our children to behave? Obviously, we have to be role modeling this ourselves, but when we're offering them tools, can you give us some specifics? I, I mean, I, the way that I've been supported in families is to encourage folks to think about, you know, developing allyship. Uh, or developing um, how to be anti-racist as not some separate new conversation. This is a should be a fundamental conversation. And so I encourage families to come up with a family mission statement, which typically gets some laughs. But, but think about it this way. What are the things that you say to your children all the time? What are the things that you say about we? We are kind, or we are people that do this, or we are people that do that. But usually with young children, we're starting off with we are kind and we are fair. That is a foundational block to build upon then we better support them in negotiating that with little kids. So was it fair to take the block from someone else? No. What are you going to do about it? Start in these foundational ways. I don't want people to think that they have to recreate something. We actually just have to live with the integrity that we said that we had. If we said that we were going to help out, then help out. I'll also kind of go to, just to keep this very simple, um, you know, Mr. Rogers said in the context of violence, what he did was his mother told him to look for helpers. Right? I think we train our children to look for helpers, but we should also be training them how to be helpers. So that means that we have to figure out how to do that ourselves. How are we helping? How are we narrating that help? How are we moving into anti-racist behaviors and actions? And are we telling our children or supporting our children that? It's not radical, but at the same time, it's not happening enough. And we can't come up with these ways that are really confusing, which is I'm going to be nice to only certain people who look like me. I'm going to be kind only to people who um, are in my neighborhood. We've got to expand our circles of belonging and inclusiveness. And we can do that by our modeling. We can do that by a conversation. And we can do that by taking a look at who we are and who we want our children to be. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, what's fascinating about many parents do consciously want to teach their children about being kind and being fair. And they begin reading books to their children about being kind and being fair at three months old, one month old, nine months old. And they recognize that they're going to understand kindness and fairness at one level when they're one years old. It's going to become more sophisticated when they're three and when they're five and when they're 10. 
And there's an awareness of that. But then when it comes to teaching their child about racism or even being anti-racist, it's too sophisticated. As if kindness is not sophisticated. <laughs> Fairness is actually sophisticated. And, and there's a huge... Anyway, so I think... So I just want everybody to really understand that there are multiple sort of levels to being kind and fair. And we recognize that and we teach accordingly based on our children's age. The other thing I wanted to say very quickly is, so my daughter, we've deliberately, when we think of her being an ally, we're actually thinking of her being an ally to Latinx people, to, to Native people, um, to Muslim people. And, and so one of the ways in which we be, wanted to begin those conversations were to get books. And so we got the book, The Water Protectors, which is allows us to talk to her about not only Native people, but the fight to protect water, right, you know, against uh, pipelines. We, we bought her a book called Where Are We From?, which is about a Latinx girl who's asking her, her elder about her past and her immigration status. Um, we, we bought her a book about a little girl who is teased on because of her, her hijab. And again, it allows us to talk to her about that and also see those children being hurt by the bigotry, right? And, and simultaneously allows us to tell her that that bigotry is wrong. Um, and for us to, again, talk, have those conversations. So, you know, we use books as those conversation starters. Let's talk about Black children for a moment. Black, and I'll extend it to Black and Brown children, to those listening who are raising Black or Brown children. I would love for them to hear your narrative of how you are teaching your own children the dual uh, lesson of uh, how unconditionally loved they are and how they need to be smart and safe out in a world where they will encounter racism. I mean, so, I mean, it, I think about this a lot in that, you know, I, I have this public voice and talking about how to other people should, should raise up their kids, but, but I better be doing this at home. So honestly, they're, they're, they're listening now. They've been to my talks um, and they see this. And sometimes, yes, that's heavy and that's a lot, but that's where we're starting. Um, and that's a blessing and a benefit to be able to do that. But how to do this, um, I think this is where we, we as folks of color, we as Black folks got to come together and, and share the wisdom and the struggles amongst ourselves. I know we probably all do that. I've got the text string right now with my two other Black girlfriends about what came up. We do this in community. Um, not that it's a right answer, but we have to be able to do this in community. And we're always teetering back and forth, I feel, between the tension between protecting and preparing. And I think... If you're white skin and have white privilege, the opportunity to protect is way bigger and the need for them to prepare is way less around race. I have to prepare my kids. Um, and that means that the, the, the cloak of kind of protection has been pulled back. So I'm, I'm moving back and forth between those tensions. And, and the only way I can really do that is by being in community with other black parents um, and other parents who are, are struggling in these kinds of ways because we also have to kind of do this together and also really hope that people are listening enough so that this is not only my fight. It's not me only going to the teacher after school to say, hey, you treated him differently. But what if a person really stood up in their allyship and a white person said, I noticed that too. 
So yes, it's about us and how we parent, but we as black folks have been doing this for a long time protecting. This is a window of opportunity to really push the inflection point and have other folks step up so that this burden is not always on me to fight um, just for my kids, um, but that we can do this together. And that's, the, I think, the allyship that Ibram's talking about that can be started in a really foundational way. Um, but that's how I would kind of encourage us to do that. We do this in community. Um, and we know we have these conversations amongst ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think for, for me, um, and even, you know, as I was listening to you, Allison, it seems as if it, I don't, it, it doesn't really actually seem like from what you were saying, the preparing and protecting are, are that there's a tension because it seems like the, what you were saying is by preparing them, you're protecting them. Mm. Right. And, 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 and then, so that's sort of, you know, I was sort of thinking about that. And, and, and I guess for me, it's like, if we teach our black children about racism, you know, then we, we are not only preparing them for a racist world, but this is how we're protecting them. Because when they are ostracized because of their race, they're not going to say it's because there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. They're going to recognize because we've taught them about anti-Black racism and about racism as being the problem. They're going to recognize that racism is the problem, not me. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, what that encapsulates is for me to constantly say to, to my daughter, there is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you because of the color of your skin. There's nothing wrong with you because of your hair texture. There's nothing wrong with you because of the way you practice culture. And there's everything wrong with anyone who says there's something wrong with you because of those things. And there's everything wrong with the unfairness in our society that treats people because of the color of their skin in a bad way. And and let me just say, I, I think... This is very, very dear to me because I, I remember I gave a, a talk at, a, at an academic conference. I believe it was in Memphis, Tennessee. And many Black parents, particularly Black parents of, of teenage boys and, and certainly even girls, talked to them about how they should act with the police. And, and the question is, and this is absolutely critical. We can teach our children, you know what, try to be as measured as possible with the police, try to de-escalate the situation with the police because we're teaching, we have to teach 14-year-olds to de-escalate situations with 35-year-old people who are supposed to be trained to de-escalate situations because we know that if they don't, they're going to be, they're not only going to be harmed, but then they're going to be blamed for why they were harmed. Anyway, so I don't. So we, we teach them right to de-escalate situations, and we teach them to try to, you know, be respectful to the police officer, no matter what the police officer is saying, no matter how they're trying to instigate the, the situation, like they did to the brother in Atlanta, and and but the question is, let's say if they still come home and they were brutalized. We should not, as Black parents or as parents of Black children, say, well, what did you do wrong? Mm-hmm. The child, the Black victim of racism is never to blame. And that is equivalent to when parents, when, when parents of a girl who's been sexually assaulted, 
they, they asked the girl, well, what did you do wrong? Why did you go there? Why were you wearing that? And so now you have to deal with not only the oppressive act, but, but then the shame coming from your parents. And so I just want our parents to, to make sure they never do that to their children. And, and I'm hoping and praying that I never do that to, to our child. Thank you. Um, I ended up having a bit of a moment as you were speaking, Ibram, because my beautiful son is 21, was 12 when Trayvon was murdered. And we had the talk with him. And I'm reminded that when he and a white female friend of his were 12 or 13, they went out for coffee or whatever 12-year-old beverage they were having, and their bikes were stolen in Los Altos, California, which is a very privileged community. And his white female friend called the police. And her parents reported to me afterward that my son had, by their daughter's account, frozen with fear when the police came to deal with this issue of the stolen bicycles. And I just want that child to know everything that you just said. You know, I hope I've instilled that message loud and clear in him repeatedly over the many years of his beautiful life. I want to turn with time remaining to some of these policies that you think we can change and know we must change. And here's how I want to frame it for both of you. Um, part of me is, is dreaming of Ryan Coogler's Wakanda. Part of me is thinking about Black Panther, this beautiful depiction of a world where colonization had not happened. And I want you to, and Ryan Coogler, by the way, shout out to Ryan, Bay Area native from Oakland, California. I'm wondering where our Wakanda moments are happening now. Where is the evidence in our America somewhere where black people are free and are thriving because the twin evils, as you call them, Ibram, of racism and capitalism have not turned us into tools for oppression. I'm wondering what you would both cite as examples of where things are working well. And these might be small local examples somewhere of something that is good. And then I want you to tell us what, what is our Montgomery bus boycott moment? In your work, Ibram, you remind us all of the power of the bus boycott in the 50s when thousands of people, mostly women, sat out or walked you know, got there differently, set up by bus, brought that economic um, devastation upon the city with their action, supported by church leaders. Where are our moments now? If you were to direct us to make policy change now, there are so many things wrong. Poisoned water, higher infant mortality and maternal mortality rates, under-resourced schools, incarceral states, violent police. There are so many problems. Tell us an example of something that is our Wakanda and tell us maybe two examples of policy change you think we should all be directed toward right now, both of you. I'm away on this one, Ibram. I'm going to let you do that one. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 
I think in terms of the, the Wakanda examples, you know, other than I'm sure when I, I suspect Allison's therapy sessions are, are some of those Wakanda moments. Um, I think, I think also there's, you know, Imani Perry recently wrote an essay in the Atlantic in which she, she talked about that it, it is important certainly for us to, to recognize black pain, but it's also important for us to not directly connect blackness to pain. And, and so there, I think there are so many moments of joy that are in private um, in which black people and even their allies who, who respect them are simply able to sort of enjoy their culture and really themselves. Certainly when, when the Breonna Taylor law was passed in Louisville banning um, no-knock uh, warrants, when I heard that the Minneapolis uh, City Council was likely to dismantle the policing force and, and replace it with a, with a new sort of force for public safety, um, conversations in different places like San Francisco, I heard that that you're going to replace or you're going to create a system of people who are unarmed that can respond to non-criminal calls that often comes into 911, sometimes with white people weaponizing their whiteness. Um, you know, those certainly are, are things for me. But for me, the greatest Wakanda moment have been the demonstrations and, and, and people from the smallest of towns to the largest of cities, young, old, of every race, with all sorts of demonstrations that, that Black lives uh, truly matter to me is one of the most beautiful Wakanda moments I've ever seen, you know, in my life. And, and very quickly in terms of policy changes, Medicare for all, uh, automatic registration. There's no such thing as having to register to vote. Uh, the complete elimination of money from politics, um, the reparations uh, to eliminate the growing racial wealth gap, and ensuring that every child in this country, their school is resourced to the needs of the children in the school and not necessarily to the wealth and the race of, 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 of those who make up the school. Nice. Yeah. That the Wakanda kind of moment or the way you're speaking about like, you know, what, what is our kind of big moment? Uh, that can be now if we choose to, to lean fully into this, that this can be the moment, right? That, and that we have that choice every day that this can be, I spoke with John Powell who talks about this is a potential inflection point. This is a place that can be leveraged with our intention, with our spirit, with our bodies, with our minds to have this be a moment. My worry is that we are so... Um, as people, and I, I think you talk about this as a notion of anti-racist, both denial and the eagerness to forget. Um, you know, trauma is about, in so many different ways, the eagerness to forget, or what we do as a collective, you know, space is to, to not remember that painful. So I get a little bit worried as we talk about going back to normal, which to me is about forgetting. And so we've got this opportunity to not forget. We've got this opportunity to lean fully in, to, to listen to the voices, the story you just told. Julie, you know, all of us have this ability to listen in this moment and to turn this into our Wakanda moment, to turn this into the inflection point. We have every ability right now to, to alter things such that 10 years from now, I'm talking to my kids, remember back 
into 2020 when this happened and look how far <laughs> we are. Like we've got that opportunity. Um, if we resource ourselves, if we pay attention to our health and healing as we do it. And that also means, I think what you're asking, that we pay attention to our moments and the possibility of joy. Mm. I know there's always this tension with, is this the moment to pay attention to joy? Things are so bad. I feel so guilty. This is exactly the moment to pay attention to joy. In these small ways um, that you all kind of talk about, the things that happen in our homes, the things that happen behind the, the curtain, but also just moments of joy and that we can think about that paying attention to raising up those stories, listening, cultivating attention around joy is an act of resistance. It is necessary. It is how we are sustained. Um, and it's always something too that we as Black folks have been really good at doing. So, so let's also own our capacity for resilience, our capacity to, um, to be in joy while also our big hands are able to hold so much suffering. And we're just asking for other folks to take on that suffering too, mm. that, that it's not about moving out. It's not about not having discomfort. We can share this discomfort. We can share this suffering. This is possible for us to do. So I think our, our inflection point, our Wakanda moment, our moment of joy is today and Juneteenth. Right. It would be remiss to kind of talk about all of this in the context of what is happening tomorrow, which is cell liberation. I'm not feeling most liberated right now, but I'm going to cultivate a time and attention to pay attention that to tomorrow. We've got to pay attention to that history, that work, and our ability to do this. Many people on the call, on the, on the listening right now, do know what Juneteenth is, but I'm not going to presume all do, and I would like for all to know. So give us a 30 seconds on, uh, or, or maybe a full minute on what Juneteenth is. Should I turn to the historian for that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you my sense of it and my understanding is it was the day in Galveston where people were notified that Black folks were, were free. And I mentioned Galveston, my family's from East Texas, so I imagine it was my great-grandfather, right, mm. that heard on a day that they, that they were to be free. Now, how that has manifested and lives is their struggle, but that's my connection. I imagine that maybe... You know, there was my ancestor in the field somewhere that was hearing that they were free. And just to, laugh, just to add to that, and they were among the last um, enslaved Africans to hear, uh, if not the last, uh, to hear that they were free because Texas slaveholders kept it, kept it from them for months mm -hmm. in 1865. So June 19th, 1865 is what we are celebrating tomorrow. June 19th, 2020. We have very little time remaining. And so I want to just alert you two to that. Let the audience know, yes, we are wrapping up. Um, I want to add to what Ibram said in terms of all the specific reform potential, policy reforms, bail reform. Uh, people are kept in jail because they can't afford bail to get out. They haven't commit, you know, they, they haven't even had their hearing yet, but they're stuck in jail because they can't afford bail. And that disproportionately affects black and brown people and of course, poor people generally. Um, to your point, Allison, about back to normal being problematic, I wanna just quote here Roxane Gay or approximate the language of Roxane Gay who wrote a beautiful essay in the New York Times uh, on Mar May 30th, I believe, at the end of which she said, um, normal is the very thing from which black folk yearn to be free. So let us not return to a past when we get out of this COVID uh, normal. Uh, let us uh, commit that our new normal will be equitable and anti-racist. 
Um, Ibram, you've mentioned in your book that sometimes we get it wrong when we demonstrate. So since demonstrations have come up as something that's really bringing you hope, um, you say in How to Be an Anti-Racist, we arrive at demonstrations, convince ourselves we're doing something to solve the racial problems when we're really doing something to satisfy our own feelings. We persistently do something to make ourselves feel better as we convince ourselves we're making society better as we never make society better. Um, give us uh, some sh- some specific advice on how to demonstrate in a way that serves society as opposed to our own ego need to try to be activists. Well, I, I think what I was speaking about was sort of, I think what I call feelings advocacy, which is essentially a person personally feels bad or ashamed about the existence of police violence. And so therefore they hear about this demonstration and they're like, you know what? I want to go to the demonstration so I can feel better. (laughs) Not so I can go and demonstrate the problem of police brutality and be a part of the movement to eliminate it, but I want to feel better myself. And so then people go to the demonstration, they feel better, Then they come home. A week later, they hear about another person who was murdered. And then they feel bad. And then they go to a demonstration. And then they feel better. And as you can see, nothing changes but their own feelings. And and so I think we have to be more focused on transforming society. I'm going to go to that demonstration to express that police brutality is wrong. I'm going to go to ensure that policy changes are afoot, and I'm going to keep demonstrating, and I'm not going to feel better until policies have changed, until inequities are eliminated, until we have a society of justice. This is our second to last question. Ibram, in a very personal share toward the end of how to be an anti-racist, you share that um, you developed... um, colon cancer, and um, and you sort of equate, you, you discuss how you were writing Stamp from the beginning years earlier and bringing in all of the history of racism into your mind, but also into your body. And um, you you allude to the notion that somehow maybe that, that cancer began to embody you in um, that racism sort of became a part of you um, in the form of cancer. You sort of suggest that it's a beautiful suggestion as terrifying and terrible as it is you also then talk about your own healing and how it is possible as a society that we might address systemic racism racist power we might become anti-racist in the manner in which we we cure ourselves of cancer and i wonder if you can if you can speak to that beautiful metaphor in a in a in a more literal sense Sure. First, I I think the most important aspect of it is that every day people are diagnosed with a horrible illness like, you know, extreme advanced heart disease or even stage four colon cancer, like like I was uh, diagnosed in, in 2008. And typically when a doctor tells them that they have this horrible disease, they feel horrible, but they don't view the doctor as attacking them. And they don't say, don't use the C word, don't diagnose me with that. No, you're the real person with cancer. 
No, they see the doctor as someone who's trying to help them. And so I think it's critically important for Americans to realize that when scholars and others who study racism diagnose America with having metastatic racism, when we diagnose individuals with with being racist, we're actually saying it because we want to treat America, because we want to help America. And those Americans who are denying the existence of racism are equivalent to those who are denying the existence of their own cancer. Because what's going to happen if we don't get treatment? The cancer is going to continue to spread and this nation is going to die. And, and so I think it's critically important for us to realize that, that not only is racism death, but denial is death. And, 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 but, but the alternative to that is accepting and realizing, yes, racist policies, racial inequities have spread to every part of our body politic. But that doesn't mean we can't still believe that we can survive racism. You know, I was diagnosed with a disease that kills 88% of people in five, in five years. So I could have easily been like, well, there's nothing that I can do. Or I could have been like, you know what? There's a small chance. And so I'm going to fight. And, and so I think that's what we need to do. And we can fight it in the same way we fight cancer. We can have a, we can have a local treatment in which we can surgically remove the racist policies. And we can have a systemic treatment in which we flood the body with the chemotherapy of anti-racist policies, which reduce racial inequity and which can even prevent a reoccurrence of, of, of racial inequities. And, and so we can even treat in the same exact way, but ultimately we can't even begin the process of treating if we're in denial that we have metastatic uh, racism as a country and if we don't want to experience pain. Because as everyone knows who suffered through a pain, a difficult illness, there is no healing without pain. Thank you for that. Um, I don't want to presume to know your health status now, but you presenting to us as well and hearty and hale, you have made such generous and necessary contributions to our collective understanding, uh, Ibram. And it is my hope and the hope of everybody listening, I'm sure, that you are beating that thing. And um, we wish you very, very well. This is the last question. It is in forums standard last question asked of all guests. And it is this. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? Allison, let's go to you first and we'll end with Ibram. A quick story. I provide services to folks that do work on the border. A story was that a, a guy who's been part of ICE a white man who had spent all day separating children from their family, came home and was asked to push his daughter on the swing. And he said that he felt numb. You don't do that all day. You don't, you don't operate in these ways and don't have a consequence. I want everybody to come back for their humanity. The analogy, the story the, the, that Ibrahim just told is about us all being well. I, I want people to come for the wellness. So the 60 seconds is come for our wellness, come for humanity. Um, and let's see each other as humans, and then we will all be better. I, I want us to expand our circles of inclusiveness, our circles of being, our circles of, of who counts as human. That's the work that I think we have to do. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And um, for me, if we, as a, as a country and even as a, as a world, 
was to accept the simple fact that when we're looking at racial inequity, we're looking at racism. When we're looking at racial injustice, we're looking at racism. And, and that racism is stemming from racist policies. And the racist ideas are causing us to look away or to see that inequity and injustice is normal. But ultimately, if we saw, because people are like, you know, can you explain to me racism? When you see racial inequality, you see racism. If it was just that simple, you know, then we would, of course, be like, okay, you know what? Black and Latinx people are disproportionately being infected and dying of COVID-19 like Native people. So this is racism. So how can we go about transforming policies, racist policies, so that this racial inequality, so this racism won't continue? I mean, can you imagine if we, if it was just that simple? Because it really is that, that simple. And, and I'm hoping and praying that, that Americans will realize that, that, that when we see racial inequality, we're seeing racism. And those who deny that are being just as racist as the people who are, whose policies are actually creating that. And the rest of us who are seeing that racism and seeing that racial inequality are, are being anti-racist and trying to build a, a, an anti-racist America. Thank you. Viewers and listeners, white nationalism, white supremacy are on the rise. Racism has been with us for a long time, but white nationalism and white supremacy have been given permission recently to come back out from hiding. It threatens the lives of all of us. This is our American moment. We wouldn't have chosen it, but it is ours. We must become anti-racist and teach our children to be anti-racist. I want to believe in America again, but the thing is, we are America. It's on us, and it's well past time. I want to thank you, Ibram and Allison, Dr. Kendi and Dr. Briscoe Smith, for joining us today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Viewers and listeners, you were tracking the feelings that came up in you, and you got some really good concrete advice as well. I want you to go tell two people what you felt and you learned today as a result of this conversation. Please be sure to pick up a copy of Anti-Racist Baby at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programs available, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Thank you also to Common Sense Media for their, for their partnership in this conversation. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. I hope you leave here asking yourself, what work do I need to do within myself, with my children, in my community, and in my America to make America kinder and safer for Black people? Thank you for being with us. Goodbye. Goodbye.